brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Here we go, people from sunny San Diego, just trying to stay warm and informed. I'm Greg Carlwood, and if you ask me, there is no shortage of subjects to focus on in these troubled times. The debt squeeze is getting tighter, the poison issue in consumer products is growing, and the rape and pillage of the planet continues on. Not to mention that we've been around the block enough to know that our regulatory agencies are completely captured, multinational corporations are insulated from their crimes, and the media is little more than their own personal propaganda pusher. So on rare occasions when news does leak out that a company like Johnson & Johnson has had asbestos in its baby powder for five decades, or more and more experts are raising concerns about cell phone radiation, or the number of vaccines we give to children skyrockets to over 70 in an era where it doesn't seem like a drug manufacturer can make products for adults without harmful side effects, let alone our most vulnerable humans using the most invasive delivery system. What are we to do but ramp up the personal responsibility and keep an ear to the ground for the few who are brave enough to speak out against the big machine when confronted with the facts? Well, one such brave speaker-outer is today's guest, Del Bigtree, the producer of Vaxxed, From Cover-Up to Catastrophe, which I consider the gold standard in vaccine documentaries, and he's the only journalist I know who's dedicated the last three-plus years specifically to vaccine safety. Dell has made one hell of a name for himself as both a filmmaker and investigative medical journalist, and even won an Emmy for his six years of work on the daytime talk show, The Doctors. He is also the founder of the nonprofit Informed Consent Action Network and host of a rapidly growing internet talk show, The High Wire, boasting over 33 million views to date, and I couldn't be more psyched to have him here. The vigilant vaccine journalist, counter-propaganda producer, and widespread corruption commentator, Delma Man, welcome to the higher side. Ah, uh, it's great to be here, man. That was quite the intro. I think you nailed it. We could practically just throw an ending on it and move <laughs> on. You covered it all. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, I try, I try. You know, these are complex things, so to get people summarized in the first 30 seconds is tough. But Well done. <laughs> this is a real pleasure, man. Thank you, thank you. I have been a big fan of yours ever since Vax came out in 2016, and I really like what you're doing with Highwire as well. I sometimes think I've overfocused on vaccine-centered episodes, and then I see what you're doing, and there's just so much more that I learned from your episodes. 
I think a good place to start today is to say that one of the big criticisms of vaccine skeptics is that we're not doctors, we're not scientists, and we're just ignorant and paranoid. Well, the reason I like your work so much is that the science, the clinical trials, the published papers, this is exactly what you're focused on. And the proof is there, isn't it? Yeah, I think that that statement, we're not doctors, we're not scientists. No, I'm a journalist. And journalists have been investigating science. We investigate the government. We out presidents when they make mistakes. We out warlords when we're, you know, backing them with our government. I mean, that's what journalists do. We get to the bottom of the story. Doesn't matter how well educated you were, uh, there's still a paper trail of what you've done. And that's what I've been investigating. And you know, to say that the anti-vaccine movement, as they like to call us, is that we're all one similar group. We're actually much more diverse than that. I like to call us the vaccine risk awareness movement. But, you know, if you grab anyone that considers themselves an anti-vaxxer, you'll find someone that has read far more science than your average person that calls themselves a pro-vaxxer. Pro-vaxxers tend to just believe their doctors are right and they do whatever their doctor says. They've been trained that that's what you do and that they're better educated than you are. So don't ask any questions. Just do what they say. The people that are waking up are recognizing that that is not the way to live and that the doctors really are not informed either. They are being sold uh, products by advertisements and drug pushers, really. I mean, the, the pharma salespeople come to their office, tell them how great something is. Nobody opposes that statement. And the doctor moves forward and sells it to you. And vaccines are really no different, except that now you have government agencies promoting them. So surely they must be good. My government says they're great. And therefore, I'm going to push them on you without any understanding of the science. And I mean that. I know it sounds arrogant or something to say that doctors don't know what they're talking about when it comes to vaccines. But that's the case. The case is that when you're going to be a pediatrician, when you're in school, there's like one page in the textbook that talks about vaccinating. And all it says is where you put it in the arm or the leg and that if anyone questions you about it, just tell them it's one of the greatest life-saving measures ever created and move on. And if they really start pressuring you, then just tell them you're going to kick them out of your practice if they continue it. That's the entire education of vaccination for your pediatricians. And you can test this. You can say, Dell, you're crazy. Okay, I'll give you a little test. Just the next time you're with a pediatrician, just ask them, say, that vaccine you want to give my child today, whether it's Tdap or flu shot or Sometimes it's all of them, MMR, Tdap, Hib, all at one time. Just say, could you please just list for me the ingredients that are in that vaccine? And they'll say, oh, well, I could certainly read them. No, 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 no. I thought that you went to eight years of school. And since there's really only two things you do as a pediatrician, you either inject one of these or multiple versions of these 16 vaccines we give our kids, or you're going to weigh and measure my baby's head. So I'm going to assume that you know what's in these and they won't be able to tell you. They can't tell you. They would have to read it. And I find that disturbing. I find that disturbing because, you know, we hold them on a pedestal. As you open this up, why would I question a doctor? We put them up on this pedestal as though they're these brilliant geniuses and the eight years of school overrides any of my own intuition. But if I go to a restaurant, if I go to the local restaurant and I have an allergy, I can ask the waiter and the waiter can tell me every single ingredient in it. And if not the waiter, certainly the cook back in the kitchen. So if I go to a pediatrician and say, I'd like to know what's in this in case my child has an allergy and they can't do it, 
You just proved that waiters are better informed about the product they're serving you than your pediatrician, as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. So when we're looking at what's in this, we're talking toxic, toxic chemicals, aborted fetal cell lines, DNA from aborted babies, aluminum, mercury, formaldehyde, polysorbate 80. So that's just the beginning of this discussion. And it's unfortunate. As you pointed out, I was a producer on the daytime talks to the doctors. I have been celebrating the greatest doctors in the world, and I love great doctors, and I love great medicine and cutting-edge techniques, brilliant surgeries. I am pro-science, but I, as you pointed out, I, in the last three years, have looked at nothing but investigating and reading the studies that they're pointing to when they tell us that vaccines are safe, and I am telling you that science is deplorable. <laughs> Well said. And you're right. The way the system is set up is very telling. People think they know and they don't. And really, there is a great analogy in the restaurant because there's a major difference between the cook who makes the food and the server who gives it to you. If the cook put something in the food differently that night, the server would have no idea. They would just keep telling you about how great their restaurant is and how good their Yelp review is and how excellent the food is. And they really don't know. So, A pediatrician, we think of them as the scientists, but they definitely aren't. And I'm sure you're constantly getting into conversations about the vaccine issue to the point that you've got your best arguments down. You know what to say to cut through the propaganda and get people's mental wheels turning. And I think that's what people need, good arguments to push these conversations forward. What are some of the first points you make to pro-vaxxers? You know, a lot of people here have probably heard the arguments, but we still struggle with our network and expanding the information to friends and family. So what are some of those first things you say to people? Yeah, that's a great question. And the truth is it's getting harder and harder to narrow it down. I could speak for six hours on this topic and never stop pointing to science. So I still try to remember that whoever I'm talking to is brand new at this. They are defending a belief system, almost like a religion. And you have to remember that this is not a scientific discussion. People cling to this idea. I mean, I think that vaccines are unlike any issue I've ever covered as a journalist. I've gone out and done man on the street interviews for most of my career. But vaccines is the only issue you can stop almost anyone on the street. And they are going to have a very intense response, either pro or against. But you will find very few people that don't have an opinion about vaccines. It is one of the most opinionated topics we have, and yet most of those people have very little information to back it up except to say everybody says they're safe and therefore they are. But I'll tell you how I I talk to a lot of politicians. I travel around trying to talk to politicians that want to take our right to exempt out of vaccines away. And so I always start the conversation very similarly. I will say to a politician, Just out of curiosity, would you mandate penicillin on every person that gets an infection in your state? And they're always intelligent enough to say, well, no, I wouldn't. And I say, why? And they say, well, because some people are allergic to penicillin, they could die. I said, interesting. Right. Well, that's true. And I'm glad you said that. You do recognize that the pharmaceutical industry has actually never created a drug or product that won't kill somebody. There's always an allergic reaction for some subset of people, no matter what the drug is. And vaccines are no different. You know, vaccines are pharmaceutical products and they too have allergies and people who will die if they receive them. 
In fact, I'll take it one step further. They have never found a single piece of food we can feed everybody where someone's not going to have an anaphylactic food allergy and die. So the conversation I want to have today is not whether vaccines are dangerous or whether vaccines are safe. We know some people will die from vaccines. So the discussion I want to have is how many people being killed by vaccines is acceptable. That's what I want to discuss is where's the data on that and where is your personal threshold on that? Because I think it's different for every person. Some people might think killing one innocent child in America a year is too much. In fact, I've said oftentimes in large audiences, like the first time I did it was at NYU. I was speaking to a classroom and I said, let me ask you all a question. If there was a nonprofit that was like the number one greatest nonprofit in the world, it fed the poor, it put in sewage where there was dirty river water, it put in clean running water, it saved elephants, rhinoceroses, it cleaned the air, pollution. I mean, they do everything. It's the greatest. Only one thing, only one little issue is that once a year, everybody gets together and they sacrifice one innocent child. Who would join that nonprofit? Hmm. And no one in the class raises their hand. You're like, that's crazy. I would never support killing an innocent child, no matter how much good someone does. And then I will point out that's even if we offered you 77 virgins after life, even, you know, or what if we offered you this mythological idea of herd immunity? And you hear the air sort of leave the room and they recognize that that's exactly what our health departments are doing. If you ask any scientist or doctor, if you really drill down on them, come on, you have to admit some kids will die from some sort of reaction to the vaccine. It happens every year. And they say, well, that's the accepted casualty to achieve herd immunity. That's what they'll say. I've had heads of health departments. And so that's where we're at. So we will kill children, a future president or a future scientist to come up with a better product to create immunity will probably die this year because of a forced vaccination program. So the discussion has to be how many kids are we willing to kill and where is the data on that? And that's where I really like to get this conversation rolling, because we have got to be aware I asked that exact question to a head of the CDC up in Washington. And she said, well, you know, it's an accepted casualty for herd immunity. I said, oh, okay. Will you please tell me then, since you're head of CDC in Washington state here, exactly how many children do we believe we're going to kill this year as a part of that casualty? And she said, well, we don't have any data on that. And I said, wait a minute, I thought you were a scientist. I thought this was science. I thought if you were going to say it's an accepted casualty, shouldn't you know what number you are willing to accept? I mean, that seems a little reckless to me that you know you're going to kill some kids, but you have no idea how many, but you say it's acceptable. See, you can't have a sliding bar on acceptable casualties. So that's where you start seeing the politicians start to lock in. And those are the questions I ask my friends. Mm. Well, okay, because... What I think the mistake we make when we start talking about vaccines with our friends and family is we immediately try to just bulldoze them with all this information we have. And when was the last time that ever worked on a subject for you? <laughs> you tune them out. You feel like, oh, you're a know-it-all. You're just trying to bully me in the situation. I like to ask questions. I like to ask questions of the people I'm talking to 
to see where is their line? Where are they really feeling comfortable? So then, you know, I might say, since I'm there, let me talk about herd immunity, because this, I think, is the number one argument that they have. It's the reason they're saying there's literally right now, as we speak, if you're living in America, you were watching the destruction of freedom, and it's all based on the pharma takeover of this country. Now, I know that sounded like a conspiracy theory, but now I can actually say that for real. You just had a Senate hearing today to try and force a federal push to demand that all people be vaccinated. You had a congressional meeting last week. Vax, by the way, just got pulled from Amazon two days ago because Adam Schiff, one of America's representatives, demanded that Amazon pull down any videos that question vaccines. We're talking about a moment of book burning we haven't seen for a very long time in a country that swore it would never do that, would never be that country that is so angry about an opposing thought that it starts burning away your access to it. But herd immunity is what they're selling this entire thing to us on. So here's the science of herd immunity, and I'm going to destroy it like a magic trick. And I've done this in huge audiences. If I'm in an audience of, let's say, 100 people, I was actually in Mississippi talking to the health department in Mississippi. There was people there trying to get a religious exemption back. They have none of their exemptions, and they were trying to win one back. And so I was talking to the health department, so all these health officials in the room And I said, okay, can we all agree, let me just make sure I have my math right, that measles, since measles is the big terrifying black plague of our time, even though if we go back to the 1960s, it was a Brady Bunch episode and we were giggling ourselves stupid when the whole family got the measles because the kid says, boy, if you get sick, you sure can't beat the measles. And like, yeah, they're all playing board games and eating ice cream because that's what measles really is. But we have changed that story. But measles is the big story. So the pharmaceutical industry and the CDC say that you need 95% vaccine uptake in order to achieve herd immunity. You've heard this argument that the growing groups of anti-vaxxers were moving outside of the 2 and 3%. We might be 5% in certain areas, maybe even 7% are now unvaccinated in kindergarten. And we've got to get those kindergartners vaccinated, right? That's the whole argument. And every news station is being pumped into us ad nauseum. But here's the problem with that. The CDC doesn't say that 95% of kindergartners, it doesn't say 95% of kindergarten through 12th grade or kindergarten through college. It's actually 95% of your entire society needs to be up to date on their vaccines in order to have herd immunity. Now, when I was standing in that room in Mississippi, I brought up a slide. I said, here is the CDC's adult schedule. Yes, there is one for those that have just heard this for the first time, and they are going to start force vaccinating all adults in the next year or two based on that schedule. So that's around the corner. But on that schedule, it says that you need two more MMR vaccines as an adult if you were born after 1957. Why after 1957? Because anyone before 1957 probably got the measles infection and has the Ferrari of immunity. They have lifelong immunity. They never have to worry about it. They can walk into any measles ward in the world and never get the measles. But if you've been vaccinated and you got your two vaccines as a kid, and now they're talking about a third one in college, and then two more as an adult, the reason for that is vaccines wear off. You know, the Tdap vaccine looks like it wears off every three years now. They're starting to struggle with why we're having pertussis outbreaks. Measles 
at best, maybe 10 years, and the odd person might have their immunity last for 20 years. So I said to this room of over 100 people, health officials, since you need two more measles vaccines as adults to be compliant, will you please raise your hand if you've had your measles vaccine in the last 10 years? You know how many people out of the entire health department and senators and congressmen raised their hand? One. One little old lady raised her hand. And I said, there you go. And everyone listening to your program right now can think to themselves, gee, Dell's right. I can't remember the last time I had an MMR vaccine. And I've said to politicians, they're telling me herd immunity. Well, what about herd immunity? It's like, have you had your MMR vaccine in the last 10 years? Like, no. And I said, then technically you're an anti-vaxxer because you are no longer immune to measles. You need to get another vaccine. And so does probably 90% of all the adults in America. So that means we're nowhere near 95% herd immunity. We're somewhere probably around 60%. And we've always been there. The only time we might have been better was when we all were getting natural measles. We probably had higher rates of immunity back when everybody was being infected and getting their immunity. So the point being is this. There has never been the 95%. We've always been somewhere around 60%. We will never get there. Herd immunity is a myth. It's been written by the ad departments of the pharmaceutical industry. I've challenged every scientist to prove me wrong. They cannot. And so this whole thing's a lie. And that's the biggest pillar of this entire push to take away your rights as citizens is herd immunity, protecting that immunosuppressed child. And here's what I want to say. I'm not going to advocate that every adult has to go out and get their vaccines now. CDC will. Believe me, you're going to hear this argument in about a year or two from their own mouths. I'm trying to warn you ahead of time, this is where this is going. But in the end, no adult is vaccinated and we don't have some return of polio that the news agencies are trying to tell us to be worried about. We don't have some giant epidemic of deadly killer measles killing people. In fact, no one has died from measles in the last 10 years in America. And before that, it was like, I think seven years earlier, one kid and one old man. And before that, you can barely find anybody. This is not a deadly disease. Though they say it's deadly, it's like saying water is deadly to drink. Yeah, once in a while you hear a story of someone who drank too much water and died. It doesn't mean water is deadly, you know? Right. And that's sort of the exaggeration of what's going on. So that's where I start. Let me kill herd immunity right out of the bag for you and then ask somebody what they think about that. <laughs> I mean, what do you have to say about that? So that's probably where to start. I could go on and never let you speak for the rest <laughs> of this interview for two hours. So why don't you throw me another question? Well, some people do, so I would be used to it. But man, it is all about the guests here because you know you guys are the ones who have the information. And while we're talking about measles, something that I consider to be pretty radical that I learned from the high wire is that there apparently are some benefits to having measles. Not only is the immunity lifelong as opposed to the vaccine, which wears off, but there's apparently new data that suggests that the benefits are even stronger than that. Yeah, so we know for a fact. In fact, we've known this. There's been studies throughout the years that have shown that if you get a measles infection as a child, they did a study looking at non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is one of the most dangerous cancers you can get. And they looked at the rates of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in people who had a measles infection as a child and those that had not. And they looked at them over the course of decades. And what they discovered was that those who had not been infected with the measles, had a vaccine or never had a measles infection, were 66% more likely to develop non-Hodgkin's lymphoma 
than those that had had the measles as a child. And then Hodgkin's lymphoma was even greater. You were 333% more likely to develop Hodgkin's lymphoma if you had not had your measles infection as a child. And vaccines do not give you the infection. Therefore, your body, they call it priming the immune system. I think you got to look at it sort of like lifting weights. If you don't lift weights, your muscles atrophy. If you don't, you know, you've got to tear muscle. That's actually what you're doing. You're tearing muscle when you're lifting weights and then it strengthens and fills in those fibers and you get stronger. Your immune system is similar. If you never tax your immune system as a child, you end up being vulnerable to all sorts of diseases. In fact, they looked at heart disease. And again, they found that if you had both, and it was even better, measles was great, but if you had both measles and mumps as a child, then you had a significant reduction in heart disease and death in your future. Some of the studies showed at least 10% and upwards of 20 and 30% in some of the studies. But what we know is even if it was 10%, so when we think about saving people from the measles and that that immunosuppressed child that might die, and as I pointed out, no one's died in 10 years, but every year, 610,000 people on average in America die of heart disease. It's the number one cause of death. If having the measles reduced that just 10%, you would be saving 60,000 people a year just by letting them get the measles. How's that sound for life-saving measures? Right, well said. And, you know, we started with that heavy question of how many people dying is an acceptable price to pay. I think yeah. that's a really great argument that you made to, you know, turn these things on the doctors and scientists themselves. But I wanted to ask you about death and injuries and injury reporting, because that is the big question. How many people are getting hurt by these shots? Can you talk to us about the reporting system we have and what happened when Harvard looked into this? Because it's pretty shocking. It is very shocking, and this actually blew me away. We hear all the time that vaccine injuries are, it's one in a million. Sure, it happens, but it's very, very rare, one in a million chance. And so I looked into that, and so did Bobby Kennedy, I worked with a lot. We had the opportunity to go to the National Institute of Health and speak to all the heads of our immunization program. It was set up by Donald Trump right after Donald Trump had gotten into office, and we asked them, you know, how are you capturing the injuries? And we'll talk a little bit about why vaccines aren't safe and how they know they're not safe. They've never done safety studies. But when we talk about the signal, what we're looking for in society is if a vaccine has gone wrong, how would we see it? How would we know? Let's say maybe China is making one of them and there's a bad element in it. How would we find that out? Well, how we would figure it out is the only surveillance system we have in America is called the VAERS system. This is the system, it's Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. This is where the doctor, if your child has a seizure right after a vaccine, then the doctor's supposed to report that to VAERS. If your child dies three days after a vaccine, they're supposed to report it VAERS. By the way, whether or not they are actually convinced the vaccine is causing it, if you read the vaccine insert that the manufacturer puts there, it has this caveat, it says that any reaction to the vaccine out of the normal or within the time of the vaccine reported to VAERS. And then you'll be able to look at the data and figure out what's really a good report or not, but it should all be reported to VAERS. So here's what we know. And I used 2016 because that was the last numbers we crunched. In fact, we're just about done crunching through 2018s, and I'm gonna start using newer numbers, but they're looking similar. So in 2016, 
The VAERS system in America alone for one year had 59,117 reported vaccine injuries. 432 of those were deaths after vaccine. And, you know, 10,000 of them were emergency room visits. So already for me, 432 deaths sounds really bad. That shouldn't be happening. And it's a lot more than I think most health professionals recognize, because as I said, any room full of people won't even join a nonprofit that would kill one innocent child. What if we're killing 432? So that's what we know. Beyond that, though, we have a bigger problem. Health and Human Services, that is the one that manages bears. And by the way, for those people that don't understand, Health and Human Services is, I think of it as the mothership of our health department. They oversee, like below them is CDC, FDA, HRSA, and the National Institute of Health. So HHS is sort of the mothership. Health and Human Services has done multiple investigations into bears, including one you mentioned by Harvard Medical School. And what they asked was, how efficient is the VAERS system? Is it capturing, what percentage of actual injuries do we think it's capturing? And they've come back multiple times and Harvard was terrifying because they came back and said, it's capturing less than 1% of the total amount of injuries that are happening, hmm. 1%. Let's just take 1%. That means that there weren't just 59,117 reported injuries in 2016. If we're to take Health and Human Services internal review and their word for it, 59,000 injuries becomes 5.9 million vaccine injuries in America in 2016 alone that are reported. 432 deaths, if we multiply it by 100, saying it's 1%, becomes 43,000 deaths in one year from vaccines. And 10,000 emergency room visits becomes 1 million emergency room visits. Now, this is no way to do science. You shouldn't be extrapolating from a 1% measurement. And I get that. I'm sure there are anomalies in there. But what we know is this number has got to be immensely larger than what's being captured there. And so one of the things that I look into is, well, CDC now knows that. HHS knows that. What do they do about it? Well, at that same time, Harvard Medical School was supposed to be trying to automate the VAERS system. We paid a million dollars for a study to see, because look, we're the home of IBM, we're the home of Microsoft, we're the home of Apple and computer learning. We've got, you know, I saw a robot in the parking lot the other day. Okay, so obviously we have technology that is beyond anything that we need to investigate something like this. So they said to Harvard, let's see if we can bring it online. Let's have VAERS be an automated system that doesn't wait for the doctors to use it, that as soon as someone reports an injury and is put in the computer, that computer just immediately puts it up as a VAERS report. Well, when Harvard did that for all of their HMO, the Harvard Pilgrim Medical Group, what they found was that of 35,000 vaccines given, there was 3,000 injuries, meaning 10% of the people were getting injured by vaccines, 10%. That's much higher than one in a million. That's not even one in a hundred. That's 10 per hundred are being injured. And so they reported that to the CDC and the CDC stopped returning their calls. And the end of the report says we were supposed to automate this but once we reported our findings, the CDC stopped all communications with us, basically threw out the million dollars, and it has made no effort to automate that system. 
So that shows you that the CDC doesn't want an automated system. They don't want the data being collected because it's bad news for the mantra they've been telling us that vaccines are safe and effective. Mm. <laughs> Great breakdown, man. And obviously a lot of people out there have this false sense of security that the tests are being done. But when it comes to the MMR vaccine, something I learned from your documentary is it seems like the only clinical trials were to test the vaccine safety against a group who got a delayed schedule. And there's no true control group. HPV vaccine, similar thing. They tested it against the adjuvants alone, and even that caused damage. But yeah. you won't find these cases where we have a true control group getting nothing and then people getting the full retail vaccine. And that's shocking, but it is true, right? That's true. I mean, that was something that we posed in our meeting at the National Institute of Health. We stared Tony Fauci right in the eyes, head of infectious disease, who was just on the stand last week in front of the Congress, and Francis Collins, head of the National Institute of Health, and we said, we cannot find a double-blind, inert placebo study of a single one of the 16 childhood vaccines. And we've looked in all of the manufacturer's data. We've looked on every .gov site where these types of studies are supposed to be shown. Are you hiding them? Is there a way you can show us these studies? Because it's very important that people need to know whether they have been through a safety study. And so just so people that are, if you don't understand, a double-blind placebo study works this way. Every drug you take is going through it. So you have a trial drug. And when that drug, when they want to test it for safety to prove it should be okay to use for people, there'll be like thousands of people enlisted into a study. And they sign off on the fact that they will not know whether they got a placebo or the drug. And so one half of the group will get the drug, the other half will get, if it's a pill, they'll get a sugar pill that'll be painted and look just like the drug. Or if it's an injection, then they will get a saline injection and not be told it's placebo. That's why they call it double blind. No one in the study knows they got it, and none of the scientists know which one got which. And this is important because remember, this science is only being done by the manufacturers themselves. The CDC doesn't do this study. The FDA doesn't do this study. We ask the drug maker that is making a product that's gonna make them billions of dollars to be honest with us about how their safety trials went, that they did themselves. But these double-blind studies are supposed to be done and they last for years. Like Enbrel was like a five-year study or Biox was five years. Some of the studies went on 10 years where one group got the drug and one group got a placebo, and we follow their health for 10 years. And at the end of that, we ask very important questions of the computer. We graph it out, everyone's loaded in, we still don't know who's who, and we ask who had higher rates of cancer? Who had higher rates of diabetes? Who had higher rates of anaphylactic food allergies or autoimmune issues? And once we've asked those questions, we have a bunch of numbers lined up, we unmask them, and if the placebo group that was getting something inert has roughly the same amount of those issues as the drug group, then the drug gets approved for safety. Now, when I worked at the doctor's television show, I was sure that every vaccine was going through this process. I mean, think about this. We go through that process for drugs that are for people that are dying of diseases like cancer. We make cancer patients wait five, 10 years for a new drug to get through that trial process. Vaccines are given to perfectly healthy children that have no problem whatsoever. So 
you have to imagine that it should be even more rigorous, the safety trial, I would think, because this is something that, you know, if there's a side effect on a drug, okay, but they were dying anyway. I mean, they were willing to take their chances, but with healthy children, I think the bar should be even higher, but it's actually lower. What we discovered was that most of the vaccines, including like hepatitis B vaccine, we give to day one old babies. Then instead of having a five to 10 year placebo study, it had a four day days. I didn't say years, I didn't say months, didn't say weeks, I said days. Four days was the trial for safety on that vaccine. And there's two versions, so the other version, really went deep and they went five days with their mm -hmm. study. I'm not making this up. And they never used a placebo. And so we said this to the National Institute of Health and one guy said, oh, well, we do placebo studies. It's just that they're earlier in trials. They're in earlier phase one and phase two, not in the phase three trials that you're talking about. And we said, great, could you please provide those for us? We'd love to see those. And then there was quiet. And then another scientist chimed in and said, Actually, no, it's true. We don't do placebo studies. We don't do placebo studies because it would be unethical. Hmm. And everybody at the table goes, oh, yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. They're unethical. I mean, it was amazing to watch the top scientists in the world not even agree or understand whether or not they're using placebos or not. But now that's the official statement. We beat on this hard enough. I've had several lawsuits against our health departments, which has got them nervous to lie to me anymore. I've won lawsuits against the National Institute of Health and Human Services, and we just settled a suit with the FDA. But now, if you say it, they will now admit it's true. We can't do safety studies on vaccines because it'd be unethical, meaning that look at like Gardasil, the HPV vaccine that came out just a few years ago. This was a brand new vaccine trying to do something no vaccine had ever done before, which was beat cancer. They're selling it as the first cancer vaccine because it says it can stop cervical cancer, even though there is not a single study that can prove that that would be the case. But that vaccine comes along, it's brand new, it has a brand new adjuvant of aluminum that they will not let any scientists in the world look at. It's a new toxic version of aluminum and all sorts of other things. Well, you would think that that should run against the placebo, but it didn't. It was a brand new vaccine. And the argument being unethical is we believe this vaccine is so amazing, even before it's ever been tested for safety, that to have a control group of teenagers that don't get this brand new product, it'd just be unfair to them. It would be wrong to deny them this great life-saving measure we've never tested for safety. And so they don't do it. And that's their argument for every vaccine. And so what I say to people is, Okay, you can buy into that baloney if you want, that it's just unethical to do the studies. It doesn't matter. The point is, is they haven't been done. So your children are a part of a giant experiment. I was trying to think of how I really get this through to somebody. And I, and I thought about this the other day. If I said to you, you know, you're going parachuting for the first time, you know, you say, well, has this parachute been tested for safety? Say, actually, no, it would be unethical to test it for safety. <laughs> Does that make it safe? Does that make you feel like, oh, I could jump out of a plane then? Oh, well, yeah, it's a, it doesn't answer your question. So it's never been tested. And that's the problem we have. And to deal with the unethical issue, I've already sort of touched on it. Remember, we do placebo studies when people are dying of a disease. We think it's ethical to make them wait for this new product. 
but it's unethical to make kids that have never had a vaccine for HPV wait five years to see if it actually does any damage or not. Instead, it's ethical to take 16 vaccines that have never been through a safety study and give them to millions of Americans and people around the world and make them a part of the largest human experiment we've ever seen. Mm. That's ethical. Right. It is very backwards. And the truth is, if you don't do the studies, you can't say you knew it was harmful. There's no paper trail that clearly shows you intended to do harm. And so they just kind of obscure it by saying, well, you know, the data isn't in. We, we can't do it. It's unethical. That's right. But it is quite backwards. And let's talk about Andrew Wakefield and Vax a little bit. I Like I said to you, I attended your screening in La Jolla, was super impressed. And there's still a lot of misconceptions about what he was saying. A lot of people have simplified it to linking vaccines and autism. But the third factor is actually the gut biome. Yeah. And I don't hear this discussed as much. And only in the last year or so have I really gotten my head around this connection between gut health and neurological issues. Can you break that down for people who might still be unaware of that gut biome component? Yes. First of all, when you bring up Andy Wakefield, any conversation you try to have with politicians or reporters, I can be pointing out Dr. William Thompson, a whistleblower at the CDC, has said that they've committed scientific fraud. I can say Dr. Stephen Kraling, who worked for Merck, has got a lawsuit right now against Merck saying they forced him to manipulate data on the mump strain. Dr. Andrew Zimmerman, the leading witness for the government of the United States, against parents with autism has just come forward because they've been using his line that there is no mechanism by which a vaccine can cause autism to throw out every person that's in what we call vaccine court. We can get into that later. If you make a complaint that you saw your child regressing the vaccine into autism after a vaccine, you'll be thrown out of court and they will say, well, that's because the greatest neurologist in the world, Dr. Andrew Zimmerman said, there's no mechanism by which a vaccine can cause autism. But actually, he just sent an affidavit to the Department of Justice claiming foul play because he said that's not true. I was the state's witness in five of the most important autism cases because it was going to decide the fate of all future cases. And in the second case, he discovered the mechanism and he went to the Department of Justice lawyers who were the ones defending the government from the lawsuits and said, all right. I've changed my stance. I've actually discovered that in this case I'm looking at, autism can be caused by a vaccine if the child has a pre-existing mitochondrial disorder. And that is the mechanism by which a vaccine can cause autism. Guess what the Department of Justice did? They fired him immediately. They fired him from being the leading witness for the government and said, well, that's obviously not what we want people to hear. But even worse, they kept using his previous testimony in every case after that, that there was no mechanism, therefore lying about his scientific perspective. So point being, I will make all of those points to a reporter and they will say, but Wakefield's been debunked. Wakefield's been debunked as though they're robots. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can point to Dr. Chris Exley, Dr. Christopher Shaw, Dr. Roman Girardi, Dr. Zibin Yao. All over the world, scientists are now coming to the conclusion that vaccines can and do cause autism. Yet all we hear is Dr. Andrew Wakefield's been debunked as though it's the only talking point they have. In fact, he's the longest lasting hit song, one hit wonder in the pharmaceutical industry. Mm -hmm. We still talk about Andy Wakefield. So I just want to make that point. So what happened in the study and why 
what is the big deal about Dr. Andy Wakefield? Well, we've referred to the Lancet study. It's the famous Lancet study. Lancet is a journal. Lots of studies are published there, but the Lancet study tends to always refer to this one study in which 12 children were looked at. And as Andy tells the story in Baxed, I was a gastroenterologist, meaning I studied the gut. And he'd written, I think, over 170 published papers and studies on Crohn's disease and intestinal health. And a mother called him and said, I would like you to take a look at my child. And she said, I just read your study on Crohn's disease. And my son seems to, I think he's having pain. He either is constipated for weeks at a time or he has really violent diarrhea. And I wonder if you looked at him, you know, he's autistic. And I noticed all this started when his autism started. And Andy said, I don't, I don't know anything about autism. He must have called the wrong doctor. She's like, no, no, no. I wanted to look at his stomach. And so Andy agreed to, and once he did, multiple parents reached out. So he ended up collecting 12 kids in what's called a case study. Now, people will say this was a tiny study. It should have never changed science. No one would agree with that more than Andy Wakefield. You do not start a hypothesis and then look at a thousand kids. You look at a group, a small group, just to see, is there a signal? Is there something there? And the study was designed to look and see, was there a novel gut disease that was coinciding with autism. Now remember, autism was a psychological issue, a neurological issue, not a physical disease in your body. So that was what they were looking at. And there was interesting parts of the study where when they would have to do a colonoscopy to investigate the stomachs of the 12 children, a lot of them, when they would clear the stomach the day before using the fluids, all of a sudden, many of the mannerisms of autism would disappear. The hand flapping would stop and some of the repetitive behaviors just from simply clearing their stomach. And so that led to this idea that perhaps the gut biome, the stomach is actually affecting whether it's creating autism they weren't sure, but it definitely looked like it was affecting the intensity of the autism. Huge, huge discovery. And that's what the paper reported, that there did appear to be a specific type of gut disease that went along with autism. And where the trouble began was eight of the 12 parents in the reviews. In a case study, you're interviewing every doctor the child has seen, everything the parents, even the nanny and babysitters, if they have something to report on mannerisms of the child, it's all collected in the case study to get the most thorough understanding of what's going on with these 12 kids. And eight of the 12 parents said that their child's autism started right after the MMR vaccine. And so in the study, it says near the end that eight of the 12 parents had claimed that the MMR vaccine, they believed it caused their child's autism. It said this paper does not prove a causal connection between the MMR vaccine and autism. More studies need to be done on that matter. That was the entire intense statement that Andy made, which was, Eight of the 12 complained about it. I'm not going to say it's proof that it's happening, but I would say we should probably investigate this. And that's what started a firestorm. Mm. The idea that a vaccine could cause autism. Now, by the way, it wasn't totally surprising that it would be an issue because what we look at the study, we act like Andy did it by himself. You hear the fraudulent doctor that fraudulently did this study and made up information, none of which, by the way, has ever been proved. And we can talk about that 
if you want to really get in the weeds. But so Andy had 12 other scientists working with him on the study, the tops in the field, the top gastroenterologists. In fact, Andy didn't do any of the colonoscopies or any of the studies. He stood there with a clipboard just reporting what the scientists and doctors that were working with the children were finding. And those doctors sat Andy down and said, I don't know if we should put this part about the eight parents claiming the MMR vaccine caused the issue. And they said, it's gonna cause problems for our school. We get a lot of funding from the pharmaceutical industry and the health department's gonna get pissed off. And Andy said, well, let me ask you all a question then, because this is really about ethics then. If the eight parents had said the autism started right after they had a natural measles infection, would we write that into our study? And all the scientists said, of course we would. And he said, okay, so then what you're telling me is the only reason we wouldn't write that vaccines do it is because we're worried that the pharmaceutical industry would have power and that somehow we have to protect them. He's like, that doesn't sound ethical to me. And they all agreed and they let Andy put it in the paper. Now, I want to make one point here. You had 12 of the top scientists in the world. They were expressing concern of the heat that was going to come down over this statement by eight of the parents, and they sat Andy down about it. Now, if Andy was going to commit scientific fraud and somehow slip false data, the data that these scientists had provided, and they all signed their name to this study. Now, maybe I would guess that scientists are pretty keen on reading every single word of a study before they sign their name to it. But how about 12 scientists that knew that they were going to come under pressure because of this vaccine issue? I assure you, those 12 scientists must have combed through that thing like no study that's ever been done. And Andy said that was the case. He had to rewrite it five times to make them all happy. So this idea that Andy somehow manipulated a study under the nose of 12 of the best scientists in the world who were already paranoid that is what started me on this journey when I first heard about him. Like, that can't be possible. You were saying he's not just a fraudulent scientist then. He must be one of the greatest diabolical minds in the history of mankind that could manipulate the minds of 12 top scientists. I've met him. I assure you that is not the case. So what happened was a hit job. It was a hit job by our health departments in the UK, and it was a hit job by the General Medical Council. They had to ruin Andy. And the way they did it is you will hear that Andy was a fraud. He proved to manipulated data. He did lose his license. The General Medical Council had a long case against him and the other lead scientist, Professor John Walker Smith. But they didn't lose their license for fraud or manipulating data. They lost their license for medical malpractice. And what it came down to, and the reason I had the details on this, and anyone can read this themselves, is because John Walker Smith, the other guy who lost his license, won it back a couple years ago because he appealed for multiple years and got into a real courtroom. And the judge wrote an 80-page beatdown of the General Medical Council saying, this is the worst handled case I've ever seen. And the General Medical Council has no jurisdiction or ability to properly handle this case. There were so many problems with how it was handled. But what is laid out is exactly what I'm going to tell you. They lost their license for malpractice because what was determined was that there's either a clinical investigation 
or medical research, okay? So those two terms decided the fate of these doctors, and this is why. It came down to did they need ethical approval to do colonoscopies and spinal taps on the 12 children? You'll hear it really put in an ugly way. They'll say Andy Wakefield abused handicapped children and did invasive procedures as though a colonoscopy is an invasive procedure. You have to remember these 12 kids all had intestinal problems. So the only way to look at it is a colonoscopy, but they want to make it sound as ugly as they can. But here's what it comes down to. They didn't get ethical approval to do those, and they lost their license because of it. Now, the question you have to ask yourself is, was it ethical? And this is what the judge looked at. So there's two terms. You either have medical research or clinical investigation. Now, in clinical investigation, it's what your doctor does. If you come into your doctor and they decide to do a colonoscopy on you and a spinal tap, they're doing that for your health. They're trying to make you healthier. That's clinical investigation. And if that's what you're doing, you don't need ethical approval. But medical research means I'm going to do a colonoscopy on you and a spinal tap, not for your health. I could care less about your health. I'm actually doing a study about national or world health. And so I'm not going to treat you. And so obviously, if you're going to do an investigation in someone's body like that and not treat them, you would need ethical approval. And why John Walker Smith got his license back is the judge said it is so clear that these 12 children, that it was clinical investigation because John Walker Smith not only treated them during the study, he also went on to treat them for years afterwards. So doing the spinal tap and doing the colonoscopies was so that he could treat those children and understand what was going on with them. And the General Medical Council had ruled that it was only medical research and they needed ethical approval because they didn't get it. They lost their licenses. So there it is. Mm. That's why Andy Wakefield lost his license. It was on a hoax put together by the pharmaceutical industry work with the General Medical Council. But I will still say this. Let's say it wasn't ethical. Let's just go ahead and say that John Walker Smith hadn't gotten his license back. I still question the fact that the study was pulled. The study was pulled from the Lancet and they said, well, it was retracted. But hear me out. This would be like if two police officers are called to a house and they hear screaming inside. They rush into the house. And I hope there's no children because this is a graphic detail, but they run in the house and there's someone laying dead on the kitchen floor and their throat has been slit. And they run in and they search the house and in the closet, the master bedroom, they find a guy standing there with a bloody knife and they arrest him. And then you end up in court and the guy gets off on a technicality because someone says, well, those police officers had no right to go into that house. They should have gotten a search warrant from a judge. And because they didn't, this murderer is going to walk. Does that mean that the murderer didn't do it? Hmm. Even if it wasn't maybe the right ethical and they should have had a search warrant, it's still we watch this happen. We've watched it happen in cases, but we still know that that guy did it. The same is true here. It doesn't change what they discovered in the study, even if it had been unethical. And luckily it wasn't. And yet we have rewritten the history of the world of the MMR vaccine around this study. It's really, really a tragedy of science. And it will one day. When I worked with Andy on Vaxxed, I said, you know, are you worried that the world will never know the truth? And he said, no, I'm not. Not at all. He says, there's no way they won't know the truth because every year autism continues to grow and eventually it will be one in two children. 
they will have looked everywhere else and it will become obvious that the parents were always right. The eyewitnesses had it right from the beginning. He said, so one day history will report it correctly and say it was vaccines that were doing it. The question is, are we at one in two children with autism by the time they finally admit it? And that's what we're up against. How long is it going to take and how long are we going to allow the health departments and the doctors of the world to push this idea that it's not what the eyewitnesses are saying they got it wrong? While we watch, remember, autism has gone from one in 10,000 children in the 1970s to now officially the most official capture of it is in New Jersey. One in 32 children in New Jersey is being diagnosed with autism. We believe that's probably the rate across the country, somewhere between one in 32 and one in 36. And boys have a much higher prevalence. So it looks like boys could be somewhere in one in 22 boys is being diagnosed with autism, up from one in 10,000. That is a crisis. That should be the number one story on every news station in America, not tens of people in Washington with the measles who were all going to go on and have lifelong immunity. How about the one in 22 boys that are being diagnosed with autism this year? How is that not an epidemic? How is that not scary? Because we get to one in two and you no longer have the United States of America. You can't mount a standing army. You'll be lucky if you can mount a standing Starbucks because either you or someone in your family you're taking care of has a neurological disorder for life. Mm. Man, it is so sad and so dark, but those details are very important when it comes to Andy Wakefield's case because those talking points are still out there. So I do appreciate you walking us through that. And so I know that the last three years that you've worked, it's been dedicated to vaccine safety specifically. Mm -hmm. But I've heard you say that next you'll be looking at vaccine efficacy. Yeah. And I guess I'm curious, what falls under that umbrella? Can you talk to us a little more about this pivot in your work going forward? Well, the reason we're moving on is because we have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that the safety does not exist for vaccines, that there's no way for them to say they're safe. And any decent scientist that looks at the work we've done. So like I said, we've won several lawsuits against government health agencies, but we've been in a debate with Health and Human Services. We sent a 37 page, I think it was 37, depends on how you print it out, but document with all the issues that we had brought up at the National Institute of Health meeting. There were internal emails that went backward. They continued to not answer our questions, but because that was so behind closed doors and off the record and we weren't allowed to share those interactions with the health department, we said, screw it. Let's just make a public document and send it in and make them answer these questions in public since they're evading us behind closed doors in front of Trump's people that were involved. And so we submitted the Health and Human Services notice. And then after many months, they responded with their own document and pointing to citations of studies that they thought proved safety and proved placebos or no placebos. And we took a year reading literally thousands of studies so that we wouldn't be inaccurate. And we have just released about a month or so ago the ICANN response to HHS. It's essentially ICANN's my nonprofit informed consent action network. We had 50 groups representing over 5 million people sign on to these interactions. And so all of that's available on my website, ICANDecide.org. But we challenged every part of safety and improved 
I think beyond a shadow of a doubt that no one can tell you these things are safe. But because the science is so poor, shockingly, I mean, I'm really actually surprised how really non-existent a decent answer is when you seek to have discussions about safety. I mean, I assumed they had done some of the safety science or even law of averages. They would have accidentally done a decent study, but they really haven't. So now it makes us think, well, geez, if they've been lying about safety all this time, then let's start looking closer at their studies on efficacy, meaning how effective it is at stopping the disease and how long that effectiveness lasts. And so that's where we are going to start investigating because there are a lot of problems. For instance, mumps. The mumps outbreaks that we've been watching over the last couple of years are happening in fully vaccinated communities in college campuses where they all have had their MMR vaccines and are up to date. Many universities already mandate that you have to have the MMR, yet that's where the mumps outbreaks are happening. In hockey teams and professional sports where most of the time when they look at it, those athletes are fully up to date on their vaccines. Why are they having mumps outbreaks? And I told you earlier that before any of these mumps outbreaks, we had Stephen Kraling and Joan Wolokowski, I think is how you say their name, Two scientists from Merck come forward as whistleblowers suing Merck saying that we were forced to manipulate the study on mumps because the FDA was seeing that all of these outbreaks of mumps were happening amongst fully vaccinated people. So the FDA actually said to Merck, we want you to look into this. You're going to have to redo your study and prove to us that the mumps strain you're using is efficacious. And so Stephen Crayley was the head. He's put in charge of the study. So they ran the studies in mouse models and things like that to try and see, you know, how long the efficacy was. And it was almost non-existent. The strain was no longer working to protect or create titers for mumps. And they reported that to Merck. Merck said that we can't do that. The reason being, they couldn't change their mumps strain because that would mean they would lose the patent. And they would lose control over the MMR, which is a big cash cow in America and around the world. So if they shifted, someone else could move in and grab that spot. So then they forced Stephen to say, use rabbit's blood. This is literally the story that Stephen has told to the courts and is still in court. They made me use rabbit's blood instead of human blood. I guess for some reason they thought the titers might hold up better there, the antigens, and that didn't work. And they tried all sorts of gimmicks like that. And when it finally didn't work, they just wrote in the numbers they wanted it to be, just made it up. So there's one instance where efficacy is becoming a real problem. Another one that you can look at right now in Los Angeles, there's a huge pertussis outbreak in a school, in a private school specifically, amongst fully vaccinated children. The article read in the paper, they're saying that you cannot blame the anti-vaxxers on this pertussis outbreak. And in fact, there's 18 kids in the school that are not vaccinated, and they're one of the only ones not getting pertussis, which also proves a point that I've been trying to make for a very long time. And when we look at pertussis specifically, there are some really, really alarming discussions that we've had about that. There's been two studies using baboons. Now, you can't test a vaccine on a human being. Well, they're already not doing the safety studies with placebos I told you about, but they also can't do an assault study, which means or an insult study where you're given a vaccine and then they put you in contact with the virus or the bacteria it's supposed to protect to see if it works. Obviously, that would definitely be unethical to do to human beings, so they use baboons. And baboons studied pertussis, actually the DTaP vaccine, diphtheria, tetanus, and acellular pertussis, which is what we use on our children, 
They gave it to a group of baboons. They gave a saline injection to another group so that they got nothing. And then they had a group that, oh, DTP vaccine. Let's not even get into that. That just adds a complication. Mm -hmm. So DTAP and the unvaccinated group. And then they submit them and they put them in front of pertussis. And as would be expected, the group that had the vaccine didn't have a cough. And the group of baboons that didn't have the vaccine, they got pertussis. They coughed a bunch. None of them died. They ended up surviving and they were fine. But then they did a follow-up study. Then a few months later, they subjected them to pertussis again. And what they found was that the natural immunity of the baboons held up, that they didn't end up colonizing the pertussis in their lungs, but that the vaccinated group did, that they started colonizing, but they still didn't have the cough. And so what they discovered is that all the vaccine is doing is stopping your symptoms, which is great. Who wants that cough? I get that, that's fine, that's what you wanna protect. But all the advertising is saying, if you've seen the Big Bad Wolf ads, if baby's at home and grandma wants to come and visit, make grandma get her DTaP vaccine to protect that baby. And they show grandma turns into the Big Bad Wolf if she decides not to get the vaccine. But think about what they're saying. They're saying it's dangerous to visit the baby if you're unvaccinated for DTaP. But when the truth is that you're actually more dangerous if you've had the vaccine because you don't know if you're carrying it into that house. It can be in your body, but you have no alarm. You have no cough warning you. You are a carrier of pertussis. And so the opposite is true. If you don't have the vaccine, you're going to have a cough. You're going to say, baby, I probably shouldn't come over and visit your new child because I have this cough. I don't know if it's pertussis or not, but why risk it? If you have the vaccine, you feel great. You're walking over and you could be a silent, deadly killer. And then a new study just came out, even more fascinating. We just talked about this on the high wire last week that looked at all the studies that are going on and reviews of the DTaP vaccine around the world. And what they discovered is that the DTaP vaccine, if you have gotten it, you are going to have more pertussis throughout your life than if you hadn't gotten it. You are going to be developing more pertussis because of the way the vaccine works. It doesn't prime the body to actually recognize pertussis correctly. And even more shocking, the article, it says this error that is going to cause more pertussis in everybody that's gotten the DTaP vaccine cannot be reversed. Mm. Which is why I say you should always have a choice whether you want to use these vaccines, because now we know every child that got a DTaP vaccine is going to suffer from pertussis more often the rest of their life because of it. And those that didn't get it, guess what? They'll have pertussis once. And maybe there is some, I'm not going to overstate it. It is one of the few illnesses that it looks like you may not maintain lifelong immunity to, but you will certainly have decades if you got the disease. Whereas now the DTaP and the suggestion, by the way, the suggestion of that study was not, so stop using DTaP. No, the suggestion was, I believe we should be giving DTaP then every three years. Mm. Packed with aluminum and all sorts of crap every three years. This is what's going to happen if they mandate vaccines, by the way. And we should probably get into that because the laws now are getting terrifying. You have people that have been brainwashed into thinking that vaccines have saved their lives. They don't look at any of the science I've discussed. And now all of your politicians, certainly it tends to lean more liberal, 
which is unfortunate. I say that as a lifelong progressive liberal, and Bobby Kennedy is calling it out too. Yes, the son of the Kennedy family is saying, I don't know why liberals are getting behind censorship and you know they're taking away our right to opt out of the vaccine program. And what that means, and it's probably in every almost, I think there's seven, maybe moving towards 10 states are looking to remove all of your exemptions to opt out of the vaccine program. That means you can't just skip one. When they call us anti-vaxxers, lots of people just say, I don't need the rotavirus vaccine. Or I don't think chickenpox is a vaccine I need. And they're suddenly an anti-vaxxer for just deciding to drop one of the vaccines. Our government wants to make it so that you can't do that. Mm-hmm. In California, we know that SB 277 took our right to choose away if we want to go to a public or a private school with our kids. But here's what's happening, folks. Take the word vaccine out of it. Let's really try and critically think about this for a second. We are saying that we are okay that the government force injects our children. And there will be laws right around the corner for every adult. Force inject us with products we have no control over that they never tell us the truth on. As you pointed out, the pharmaceutical industry lies all the time. I pointed out multiple lies by the CDC in this conversation. You are going to be force injected with products you have no control over. Now, I don't know that I need to tell you that Nazi Germany did similar things or other countries have tried similar things that ended up being considered atrocities. But do you want to live in a nation where the government actually treats you as property? Because that's what it is. Go ahead and keep referring to the herd because they are considering you a herd. You are a herd owned by the United States government. And if you allow them to take your exemptions away, that means you no longer own your own body. The government does. So forget about your gun rights. Forget about your land rights. Forget about your water rights, your right to free speech. Right now, hanging in the balance in the Senate, in the Congress, throughout you know many of our state capitals, is the decision to say, You do not have a right to control your own body. People, please, please wake up now. Our founding fathers are rolling over in their graves. Don't be so terrified of 2% of the children that are going to go on to have lifelong immunity to the diseases they contract at home. There's no case of them ever killing anybody once they got it. And they end up being the healthiest kids by every study across the world. Doesn't matter. Force injections. And think about Donald Trump. Because this is a huge push by liberal progressives, and every one of them talked to me about Donald Trump as though he's the Antichrist and the end of the world. For them, their anti-Trump and pro-vaccine mandate, I have this to say to you. Donald Trump, who you're angry is going to try and force to build a wall, could have control over your body if you let the Democrats take away your rights to choose what happens to your body. The president of the United States, folks, puts into office the head of the CDC, the head of the FDA, the head of the National Institute of Health, the head of the EPA. So all the people that decide what is going to be mandated into your body are put into their positions by the president of the United States. So if you're afraid of Donald Trump, please wake up right now and know that what if someone worse? What if someone even more controlling? Do we really, really think 
that our nation is so smart it will never vote in a Mussolini, a Hitler, or someone that has the least bad ideas for maybe the darker people, the black people, the African Americans, the Asians, the Latinos, or maybe gays. Maybe they don't like gays. If you have a forced vaccination program where you're having to show up every year and get injected with things you don't know about, don't be shocked if suddenly, oh my God, look at that. In that poor community down there, they're having real trouble giving birth. They seem to be sterile and we don't know why. Maybe I'm living in a science fiction movie. Maybe it's all going to be okay that the government's going to own our bodies. Maybe it's okay that the pharmaceutical industry is the most powerful lobbying in Washington, outspending oil and gas two to one. Maybe it's okay that the Senate hearing today wants to align pharma and the CDC together and merge them to work hand in hand to control your body. Hmm. Maybe it is. You decide. But if you make that decision... I'm out of here. <laughs> yes, man. Nice, nice. I love it. And uh, mm, as we're winding down here, I guess I would just ask you, is there anything else to say to people about how they can get involved or help to turn the tide on these issues as we're going forward? Yes, you've got to call your politician. You've got to reach out. It still works, actually. I travel the country and I talk to politicians all the time and they say to me, Dell, it's an intriguing pitch. You've made some really good points, but why are none of my constituents here complaining about this? And when you have to know, I know it's hard to get up and go and call your senator, your congressman, your assembly member. They know how hard that is to do. So if you bring your kids and your wife or you know your husband, you represent thousands of people to that person because they know how hard it is. And you've got to go in and tell the truth. And it's easy to do on days where all of the groups that are behind this are sharing and helping you do it. So you need to reach out. Start looking for health choice or vaccine choice, whatever your state is. Type in health choice Washington or vaccine risk choice, anything like that until you find that group. Or if you go to the national uh, NVI, is it? Oh, shoot. I've got too many letters popping around my head. Anyway, come on to my show this week. I'll make sure to post it, the high wire, so you can find the group near you. But join that group. And lastly, you got to get out. This is the issue of our time. This is going to decide whether you are free or not. The pharmaceutical industry is taking over your government. They've taken over the CDC. They've taken over the FDA. My parents, who are still liberals, are like, Donald Trump's going to destroy all of our regulatory agencies. And I say, oh, my God, I pray that he does. <laughs> because here's the problem. I want regulatory agencies. I'm not crazy. I know industries lie to us all the time. But if Merck is being run by Pfizer and Sanofi Aventis, I mean, if, if CDC is being run by Merck and Sanofi Aventis and Pfizer, which it is, then you don't have a regulatory agency. If the FDA is being run by people from Monsanto and the EPA is being run by people from Exxon, all of those things you can look up are true, then you don't have regulatory agencies. And at that moment, at least then you will realize you're all by yourself and you better start questioning everybody and everything and reading every label. And lastly, when it comes to this issue, we've touched on it, I want to simply put it this way. The pharmaceutical industry lies to us on a constant basis. There are lawyers on your television every week saying, if you've been injured by this drug, get on to our lawsuit. And 
we have seen lawsuits for Vioxx where they killed 65,000 people before we found out they knew the drug caused heart attacks from the beginning the whole time. As you pointed out earlier on, Johnson & Johnson knew there was asbestos in the talcum powder we were sprinkling on our baby's genitals. They knew it the whole time. And OxyContin, look at OxyContin. The OxyContin epidemic is destroying tens of thousands of people are dying every year in America from that. All of that pushed by an industry that lied, that lied about its safety, that lied about the addictive qualities. And guess who was right there with them? Don't just blame the pharmaceutical industry. The CDC and the FDA have been saying that OxyContin is not addictive the whole time. They've been saying that Vioxx was safe the whole time until it proved not to be. They've been saying that talcum powder is safe. And they're the ones telling you that vaccines are safe. <laughs> now, Add to that every product I just mentioned, you can sue the manufacturer, which means they've got to be worried about it. And they end up paying out billions of dollars. But there's one product this industry cannot be sued for, only one, and that's vaccines, the product that's being injected into your babies. And the product I have told you has never been through a safety study. All those others, even though they must have had to fake some things, at least they had to go through a safety study, not your vaccines. So the only product you can't sue the pharmaceutical industry for has never been through a safety study. And add to that is the only product in this country that is forced upon free citizens. So you have taken away every market force that it would be for them to evolve this product and get the dangers and the levels to come down. Mm -hmm. You took away the market force of lawsuits, which would demand a better product, and you've taken away the market force of choice. And by God, of all of the industries you would give a free ride to, to not be able to sue them, is the pharmaceutical industry the one you choose? And is the product being injected into your children the one you'd feel good about that on? I need your help, folks. We all need to get on this. This is a crisis of astronomical consequences. Right. Well, great points. I hope people are feeling motivated. You're doing great things. Before we really get out of here, are there other resources or plugs you'd like to throw out so people can keep digging into these issues and following your work? You got ICANN, you yeah. got Highwire. Yeah, the Highwire. So the Highwire, look, we may all get kicked off of Facebook at some point. So if that's the case, our website hopefully is launching this week, thehighwire.com. Go to the Highwire. I do a live show every Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific time. It's a lot of fun. We add some humor to the issue as we sort of give the pharmaceutical industry and our our regulatory agencies, the beat down. We try to talk about other things like Monsanto and things like that, but there is so much information about mm -hmm. vaccines right now. It's really hard to talk about anything else. Definitely go to my nonprofit, the Informed Consent Action Network, which you can find at ICanDecide.org. Look at the government papers. You can read all of the science I'm talking about. And everything I talk about, I cite and back up with published science all the links are on our website, and every time you watch The High Wire, all you have to do is type I-C-A-N into your comments while you're watching on Facebook, and we'll send you all the science that backs up our points. I will say this. History will show that the science was actually on the side of the anti-vaxxers, that what was done by the pro-vaccine community was one of the biggest abominations of science that has ever happened. It's going to take some time. We need you with us because the longer it takes, the more dangerous it becomes, and the more our rights disappear. 
We do not want to go beyond 54% of our children with chronic illness. One in four children leaving elementary school on a drug, they'll be on the rest of their life. One in two adults now on drugs. This is the world, this is the new normal. If you don't like it, step up and do something about it now. Mm. Well said, beautiful stuff. Well, I can't thank you enough. Again, big fan of what you do and how you do it. So keep up the good work, take care, and I'll see you next time. Awesome, Greg, appreciate it. Sweet dreams are made of these dear people, the man himself, Del Bigtree, gracing THC with his presence and bringing the heat. I really don't have much to say. That was excellent. I mined Dell's work for some of what I considered the most advanced level two things about vaccines rather than the basics. And I just think we hit on so many great points. The measles stuff was pretty wild that you might be immune to other things like certain types of cancers by getting measles. I mean, wow. And also, of course, that a natural immunity lasts longer than a vaccine anyway. I kind of knew that, but it's good to reiterate. And it's pretty synchronistic, too, because I've gotten several emails from listeners lately who have sent me various articles about the political and media-based campaigns to force usage and limit liability. And I would write them back and say, I got one coming for this. Just hang tight a little bit. (laughs) And I'm sure those people are pretty happy that we highlighted this because it's not the same old vaccine conversation. New stuff is happening. New stories are coming out that are designed as hit pieces on anti-vaxxers. And I actually really like that Dell uses the term ex-vaxxers a lot instead because it implies, hey, I was like you until I really dug into the issue and now I'm an ex-vaxxer. To me, there's this built-in insinuation that you learned something and then changed your mind. It's a lot less polarizing, a lot less me versus them, but it says the same thing. And in terms of hit pieces, obviously in the vast sea of the internet, if you see the same story propelled to the top of your news feeds in several different places, I always consider that a bit of a bullshit story. I mean, it could be a real thing that happened, but if it fits into one of these agendas, then you know that they just push it to the front as much as they can. And one that got me recently is this kid who's taking his parents to court over being unvaccinated. I mean, it's actually pretty heartbreaking. Everyone is already a little annoyed when it comes to these douchey, toolbag, smug millennial kids. And then you have one of these types of kids, this teenager who thinks he knows everything, putting that sort of rift between himself and his parents, siding with the system over his own family, and what's scarier still, setting up a template for more to do the same. It's the sort of thing that scares me away from wanting kids entirely, because I could not take that. It's like a family who recovers their kidnapped daughter only for her to say, actually, I like him better than you, mom and dad. Which did happen in that R. Kelly situation, for anyone who's been following that or watched the docu-series. Two different sets of parents are all over the news saying, I haven't seen my daughter in years. She's brainwashed by this psychopath. She's in a cult. And then R. Kelly lets her up from the basement to do a couple carefully planned interviews, and she's like, no, my parents are crazy. I'm fine. I love living in piss-soaked cell number five. We're in love, actually. 
It's just so sad. I don't know how these parents stay strong in those sorts of situations. This idea of suing your parents because you weren't vaccinated strikes the same chord with me. If you opted out for the safety of your kid and then in their teens they started drinking the Kool-Aid and took you to court, it would be crushing. And when I think about that story from a strategic perspective, like if we really are in an information war with the system, and we are, I saw that story and I thought, wow, that's genius. Well played. If parents aren't scared into vaccines over legal action and not being able to go to Disneyland or the mall, that will scare them into doing it. What if you didn't circumcise a kid and then when he was 16, he sued you for emotional distress because some girl thought it looked weird? Huh. But there are a lot of political and perception management issues in the vaccine arena right now. That's just the one that strikes me as the hardest to take on a personal level. I also thought it was interesting that Dell mentioned at one point that vaccines mask symptoms, but you might still carry the virus. That's exactly what Patrick Jordan was saying, and I love the guy, but I do consider Patrick Jordan to be one of the most extreme in his positions. I mean, he considers himself the most extreme, so it's not really news, but it was nice to see some overlap here, some complimentary comments, maybe we should say. But great show. It was a real milestone for me. I remember when Vaxxed first came out, THC was still a baby, and I watched this great documentary in a theater, which was kind of mind-blowing. I see Dell in the lobby shaking hands and taking pictures. I shook his hand, I said great job, and I didn't mention that I had a podcast. Mainly because I almost never mention it in person when I meet someone who could be a potential guest. It's much easier and efficient to send him an email with a link to my Twitter or my YouTube where we see tens of thousands of subscribers and they say, oh, okay, I get it now. But I thought then, man, it would be really great to have Dell on, but I just don't feel worthy yet. So I put it away. And now years later, I do feel like we've built a platform where it's not guests doing me a favor, but it's actually a large show with a well-crafted, intelligent, high-level audience that is large enough for it to definitely be worth a guest's time. So I stayed patient, and funny enough, two different sources in the same week put me in contact with Dell's people, one being a listener who had a few contacts and said, hey, you got to go on this show. And the other was the Grimerica guys, because they also had Dell on recently. So big thanks to everyone involved. I am really glad that I waited, and it's just a nice thing to see it all come full circle. So thanks, guys, for listening. Definitely follow Dell's show, The High Wire. You get all these lesser-known threads and breakdowns of recent media hit pieces and all that sort of stuff that I think is really important to keep tabs on. Of course, if you like the first hour of the free version of THC, join THC Plus for a second hour. It's 8 bucks a month, but I bring you five great shows, and it's all action-packed and commercial-free. You're not paying to hear me talk to these guys about the weather. I definitely try to keep the ball rolling and value your time and financial contribution. In today's Plus show, 
We talked about that idea that different races and genders are being disproportionately affected. Dell's a little more reserved on going there, and I get that. We talked about the problems with child protective services. That's something that I definitely think needs a full show. I got to find the guy for that. Talked about eczema and other autoimmune conditions as vaccine damage, the complex story of the polio vaccine. The whole issue might have been related to the chemical DDT. We talked about what the world's leading expert in aluminum has to say about its effects on health. We dive deeper into vaccine ethics, and I got to ask a question I've been thinking about since I first saw Vaxxed. Could my childhood meningitis have been caused by vaccine damage? Dell is a little skeptical. There's no precedent for a meningitis-tainted vaccine to appear in Colorado. There is a precedent for it to appear in Canada around the exact same time I was being vaccinated. But unless we can find that that tainted lot of vaccines in Canada was offloaded in Colorado, then we can't really say it's related, although it was offloaded in other parts of the world. And another thing that is worth mentioning, we talked about the Trump administration and the vaccine issue. People give me a lot of shit for not being a Q guy, for not trusting our fearless leader. But when something legitimately comes up, that speaks to a good argument for that case, I ask about it, and I highlight those things that suggest I might be wrong. I did it with uh, Dylan Monroe, too. I don't trust authority or any president, and I'm actually surprised when I hear that Trump sent a team of people, with Dell included, to ask questions about vaccines. It's a good thing. I'm willing to highlight that, and I'm willing to be wrong if it's actually getting movement on some of these things that we want done. I'm just skeptical of people in the presidential seat. I still try to be fair, though. But yes, that's the show. Good times, great oldies. I tried to set this show up in a way that makes it a nice tool to show people in your life who aren't yet convinced. We don't need to yell and scream. We just need to tell folks what they aren't being told and make rational, well-thought-out, simple arguments. So huge thanks to Dell for not just taking the time to talk to me, but for all the work he does. Tell him if you liked it, and I'll see you next time. Your move, propaganda-pushing pediatricians, perception management media manipulators, and regulatory agencies that do not regulate. Your fucking move. Have a drink and a smoke. Listen to the cast. We shine a shiny spotlight, put criminals on blast. The pinstripe men of mourning and families of finance. DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild. The kids don't stand a chance. The kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. I said the kids don't. The kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance We're looking for the answers To questions never asked So we come to the Carwood For the higher side chats The pinstripe men of mourning And families of finance DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild the kids don't stand a chance 
The kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. I said the kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. We try to get a glance We're working on the numbers Resistance must advance The pinstripe men of mourning And families of finance DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild The kids don't stand a chance The kids don't the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance I said the kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance The kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance I said the kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance